Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, February 11th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook, which is going to be important in a few minutes. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So no, this is not a show directly about Facebook, but it is a show about how Facebook might be influencing the way that technology shapes our future. So longtime listeners of the show might remember that I live in the Bay Area and also that I'm really intrigued by virtual reality, both as a neuroscientist and a culture vulture. I'm really curious to see how virtual reality is going to shape the way we think, the way our brains function ultimately if we spend enough time in it, and how we interact with each other. Now, many of you might be familiar with Amara's Law, the idea that often we overestimate the effect of a technology in the short term, but underestimate its effect in the long term. And that certainly is true of Facebook. I think when it first came out, if you were anything like me, you thought, well, yeah, sure, sure, that's kind of cool. And, you know, maybe I'll spend a little bit of time checking it out. But I had no idea that it would affect so many different facets of our lives as it does today. In fact, even perhaps having a hand in shaping world politics. So when I found out that Facebook bought Oculus, I must say, I was a little bit concerned, wondering how this acquisition might affect the development of the technology and what Facebook's interest was in VR. So to understand it more deeply, I read a book by journalist Blake J. Harris called The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality, which just came out. And I have to say, it reads like a thriller. If any of you are familiar with the trilogy called um, Griffin and Sabine, it's this beautiful set of books where you get to open up each page and each page is a correspondence between these two people. So you literally get to open up an envelope and take out a letter and read it. It feels very voyeuristic and somewhat taboo. I have to say that reading this book was a little bit like that because you get access to Mark Zuckerberg's email, among other things. And there's a foreword by author Ernie Klein of Ready Player One. In it, he talks about how Oculus influenced him to write the book. And ultimately, we learn how his book influenced Blake J. Harris to write this one. Blake J. Harris, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. 
So this is a really fascinating story, I think, for a lot of us about sort of how Oculus became the dominant player in VR uh, and then was uh, acquired by Facebook, which I think was a big surprise to the gaming world. So let's start there. Um, What do you think set Oculus apart in the very early days? Yeah, so let's go back in time to 2012. So, wow, seven years ago now. And uh, at the time... And I think this gets to what set Oculus apart. The the thinking at the time was that virtual reality was this technology, this fascination that had died in the 90s. There had been a lot of attempts at headsets um, and other devices in the 90s, um, and they definitely were not successful from an economic standpoint. And um, really, there were less than probably 100 people around the world, or or maybe a little over 100 people, uh, academics, that uh, and then in th- VR enthusiasts who were still interested in this, and one of those people who was interested was a teenager named Palmer Lucky, who would go on to found Oculus. And so, you know, to get at the heart of your question, I do think a lot of it has to do with what the prevailing perception of VR was at the time, and that is initially what set Oculus apart. That they at least saw something fascinating and opportunity where no one else was really looking anymore. You know, one of the great uh, fascinating aspects of of the story here, and, you know, it is uh, fact rather than fiction, uh, is is the foreword by Ernie Klein. You know, so a lot of our listeners know that I'm a big fan of Ready Player One, which is the book that Ernie Klein wrote about Oasis, which is this virtual reality uh, in the future. It's set in like 2045. And the kind of the the future in which uh, it's said, you know, people live in these kinds of trailers and very kind of almost cliche now, Oculus also, in a sense, started in a trailer. Yes. Um, I, just in terms of this being fact and fiction, I, I felt like I was dealt an embarrassment of riches uh, when it came to facts to deal with. And that was one of the early ones. The fact that Palmer Lucky, who was 19 at the time when he founded Oculus, uh, he, like Wade Watts, the protagonist in Ready Player One, was uh, living in a trailer, um, though his was parked outside of his parents' home. And he had basically uh, retrofit. He had gutted it and retrofitted it to be this like le- this laboratory de- devoted to VR headsets. And and I'm glad that you're a big fan of of Ernie Klein's book and of the forward because um, that for me was a huge inspiration to write the book. So it was great to get him to write this forward. You know, I, I, like I said back in 2012, people were not really thinking about VR, and I am certainly amongst those people who were not thinking about it. I thought it was something that had gone away that would not really be part of my lifetime, that would just be a trope in science fiction. Um, and then I read Ernie's book, and uh, there's a lot of things that are great about it. Um, but but I think that the one that inspired me to investigate this technology here and end up writing this book was just how feasible it all was within a reasonable amount of time. This wasn't, you know, a hundred years into the future. This was something that could be happening now. I mean, I think that's what's really surprising to a lot of people. I mean, you know, anyone I think who hasn't experienced uh, Oculus or some of these technologies really still sees us as being very far behind. Um, and even some people who have seen, you know, I mean, I've, I've played um, some of those those games in, in Oculus, like the ones where you're using the haptic hands and you have to like do surgery on an alien. Um, and it's still pretty kludgy. Uh, I don't know. I, people tell me that's a Canadian word, but it kind of means that it's like <laughs> It might clumsy. be a Canadian word, but it is a great word. So, <laughs> okay. yeah, so I think everybody understands what, what I mean by that is that, you know, that it still doesn't quite it, it, it's not so 
uh, forgettable, like that the fact that you're in this other space that you can, you know, just just kind of think that you're in a new reality. And yet there are so many aspects of that experience that really point to the fact that you it, it's it's either very close or it's already here in terms of being able to, you know, sort of experience this alternate reality as truth. Right. Well, this is probably the antithesis of what you usually do on your show. You know, this is very unscientific. This is just my oversimplification opinion that I would expect people at Oculus or Valve or HTC or wherever else they make VR headsets and software to disagree with. But, you know, I sort of see this dichotomy between um, there's interactive VR, uh, which is computer generated and like video games and like what you're describing, conducting surgery, even with your hands and on an alien. And then there's also uh, like cinematic 360 degree videos, um, which would be the equivalent of if there was a 360 degree camera uh, wherever you are right now that recorded this conversation, you know, that was recording during a conversation. And then you could go back and put on a headset and relive the experience, which in that case probably doesn't sound that fun. But when you think about that in terms of, you know, a child's second birthday party and grandma and grandpa can't be there, and then you send this, this video, for lack of a better word, um, and that one is the one where I do feel like you kind of are that you forget that that you're not that you forget that you're still actually at home because it you know the, the the quality the resolution still leaves a little bit to be desired but you do feel like you're in another place and the the analogy I always think of and thought of the first time I tried one of those was um, from Harry Potter are you a Harry Potter fan yeah so uh, it, you know when you have that kind of experience it's like uh, stepping into the pensive and you're like stepping into another person's memories and into their reality. Um, so, so yeah, so in some ways it does feel like we're very close to this future and in some ways uh, it is kluge. Um, but, but either way, I am very surprised by how much further along than we, than I would have thought back in 2012. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about why there was this sort of seeming stagnation. Like it seemed like there was, you know, a, a, you know, an entry point in the nineties and that, that this was going to become a reality. And then, it didn't. And is that, you know, is the, what do you think it was that kind of caused this this sort of stagnation? And, and what is it? Is it Palmer Lucky? Is it just a confluence of other things? What kind of brought us now into this kind of exponential pace? It definitely was not just Palmer Lucky. Uh, there was such a confluence of events that happened even with just the beginning of this book and with Oculus that, that kind of put Oculus into this different position. Um, and, I, and I'll get to that in a second, but because I think that one of the other key things, uh, there's probably two, two really big key things. One is that most of the technology that Palmer was able to leverage or that Palmer used leveraged the advances that had been made with screens and other technologies for cell phones or with smartphones. So, you know, back in the 90s, we didn't have such high resolution screens that could be purchased cheaply, cheaply or, or gyroscopes that were so affordable, which are, you know, and, and that leads to the tracking and the visual display component of virtual reality. So VR was uh, a beneficiary of this technology that seemed unrelated at the time. Um, and then the other, it's, uh, it, it's really the, the combination of, of hardware and software. You know, I think that typically when we think of virtual reality, we think of the headset, we think of the, the hardware, but unless you have something like, you know, something fun to play or something fun to watch or something fun to do, um, it's kind of worthless. And because you had this chicken and egg problem of hardware and software, you know, there's no point in making software if there's no hardware and there's no point in making hardware if you don't have anything to play on it. 
that led to the stagnation as well, at least from like an entrepreneurial standpoint, because um, those are two different challenges to solve. And um, that's where sort of one of the most, the, the, the fortuitous events that set Oculus into motion happened where uh, John Carmack, the legendary programmer uh, known for his work at id Software doing Doom and Quake and Wolfenstein, um, he was trying to uh, re-release an old game, a, a sequel of Doom, and wanted and was working on the software and looking for hardware back in 2012. And, uh, you know, Sony made a headset that wasn't even really VR. It was more like a television experience mounted to your face. And there were some other products by companies like Imagine. And then all those things were very expensive. And he found Palmer, um, this hack, this hobbyist and this hacker who had a headset that was much cheaper and, uh, and that Carmack really loved and ended up showing off at the video game trade show E3. So that, you know, and that sort of propelled Oculus into motion. And, and I think it really just touches on part of why there was that stagnation because, you know, without the hardware, uh, you know, you need this combination of hardware and software. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of your process because, you know, your, your books in some ways reads like, it, like I have to admit it, you know, there are times when it just kind of made me feel uh, like I was reading someone's emails that I shouldn't have access to. Like <laughs> Zuckerberg's. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, it's like totally uh, titillating, but at the same time, it made me feel like, wow, like, should I really be uh, privy to this? But, you know, hey, we live in a whole new world now. Right. So tell me a little bit about what your process was in terms of uh, getting the information for your book. <laughs> Uh, I'm just so honored by that compliment of feeling like you were a voyeur um, and being titillated by these things that you maybe shouldn't have had access to. Well, the good news is that all of the emails and text messages and everything in the book were given to me almost always by the source, but at least all legally. You know, there was not some crazy um, hacking or leaking that led to that. But um, yeah, for, so for me, I had written one book previously called Console Wars about the battle between Sega and Nintendo in the early 90s, the behind the scenes corporate battle. And through the process of writing that book, um, I sort of found my voice and, and created a book that was the kind of nonfiction that I want to read. And the way that I most often summarize my objective in writing and specifically with that book was to write, uh, was to write technology stories in a way that my grandma would appreciate. And, you know, she's, she's not very familiar with technology, but by making it about the people and the larger ideas, um, and then sort of along the way, you're teaching the reader, um, about the technological component. And so, so for me, that's, I guess that's just a long-winded way of saying that for me, um, to wanting to tell character-driven stories, access is everything. Um, I want to tell the reader um, how people were feeling and what, you know, recreate the conversations that they had and sort of the cinematic aspect of it. And, uh, and then, you know, again, with, with console wars, <laughs> that, that story happened uh, 20 years ago when email was just in its early stages. And then here, um, you know, I, I was at first trying to figure out how big of a role that should play. And, uh, and then ultimately, I was kind of thinking that, you know, back, back in, uh, back in the 90s, and, and in console wars, a lot of the book focused on, uh, you know, meetings. And in a way, email is kind of like the, the virtual or surrogate meeting, especially for, you know, from a business story, because a lot of things are getting decided over that. And, and so initially, I had reached out to uh, Oculus in the summer of 2014, and then it took 14 months for me to uh, get the access that I was hoping to get, which was uh, essentially uh, unlimited and ex and exclusive. Or you know, uh, I was the only author that they were working with, 
and that ha- and that was given access uh, in February of 2016, one month before they launched their first product. And it was just really fascinating to be in touch with these people as they were launching a groundbreaking product. And also, this was after they had sold the Facebook, so they were dealing with a lot of uh, negative sentiment about having sold the Facebook. And then also, their first year um, did not go as they had hoped. So then, at some point, though, your access was pulled. <laughs> so tell us about that. You know, we've mentioned Palmer Lucky. He was the the teenager uh, who founded Oculus, and he did so. And you know, shortly after founding Oculus, he uh, started working with uh, three other co-founders: uh, Brendan Areeve, Michael Antonoff, and Nate Mitchell, who all were close friends and had worked together. I, I was in touch with uh, the four of them, as well as uh, many of their colleagues, and things were generally going pretty well. And then um, in September of 2016, so you know, seven months after I had really been uh, living with these people to uh, a degree, Palmer Lucky was, became, as uh, Wired called him, uh, the worst person in Silicon Valley. And that was based on the some articles that came out. At, um, originally, it began with a Daily Beast article that said uh, Palmer Lucky was, was the billionaire who was secretly funding Trump's meme machine. And the insinuation from that headline and all the articles that followed was that Palmer was uh, a financing uh, a troll factory putting out uh, nasty memes during the 2016 presidential election. Uh, most of that was not true, but um, anyway, it made uh, Palmer was uh, not very popular in Silicon Valley with certain consumers and also with a certain segment of the company. And uh, six months later, he ended up being fired. And um, then there was sort of this odd situation where he was clearly someone who I had been in touch with and remained in touch with, and uh, and and very, you know, not not surprisingly, but very sharply, Facebook and people that were still at Facebook uh, had a very different narrative of how the company began and Palmer's role, and then eventually, through through continued dishonesty about um, why he exited. When I, I basically called them on that because I felt that I knew the real story and their, in their version, he uh, chose to leave and to just go on to something else. Um, they ended up cutting off my access after two years. And uh, I guess it was kind of inevitable, but dealing with Facebook was one of the more interesting experiences during this process. And particularly for me, because I, I have experienced, um, you know, comms people or just individuals who who strongly embellish their um, perspective, you know, strongly embellish the facts or, you know, do a lot of spin, which in a way is their job. And while it's annoying as a journalist to have to dissect that, um, you know, it's kind of par for the course, but I'm not used to outright lying. Um, And that was a lot of what I experienced with Facebook. Yeah, so I wanted you to tell us about that, because I think that that actually is a theme that runs through your entire book is the sense that, um, you know, Silicon Valley is often uh, sort of driven by a lot of hype. And the founder that discovered something and changed the world uh, in his trailer is a part of that. And so, you know, I I think that that's what, you know, in a lot of ways for us to understand um, where we're going to go with virtual reality and how these things get made. Um, we kind of have to understand too, kind of the 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 interests of these different companies, and and how nowadays people have talked about. I mean, you know, Facebook is another example of a company that started in someone's dorm room, right? 
and now has become this 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 force that has very different things to to consider. And I think virtual reality has some of the same potential issues down the road where, you know, one of the reasons, as you mentioned in, in the book, that Facebook was interested in Oculus Rift was not just so that they can provide, you know, a gaming console, because this could be the next major revolution in terms of, you know, insofar as a smartphone has revolutionized, uh, you know, our society, so too will VR. Right. And central to that is by Mark Zuckerberg's own admission. Yeah, I, I believe this is in the prologue to the book, and it's something that he's said in other places. But you know, he felt like he missed out on mobile with Facebook, and that, that was partially due to timing with when Facebook was founded. But you know, in a way where competitors like Apple and Google really got in early and clearly found a lot of success with the hardware and the software side of mobile and with building a platform, um, that was something that he felt that Facebook missed out on. And, and, and an opportunity that he saw with Oculus for virtual reality and then also with augmented reality, which is similar to virtual reality, except it's images overlaid in the real world as opposed to being immersed completely in a different world. We all want to be able to practice mindfulness every day, but sometimes it can be hard when we're overwhelmed with work and other aspects of life. Well, there's an app called Blinkist that can help. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information, so you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library, from self-help, business, health, to history books. So often, self-help books really have a message that is pretty succinct, but, you know, has to fill hundreds of pages. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just spend 15 minutes to get the gist of the idea and walk away a better person for it. And that's exactly why I like Blinkist. If there's a book that I'm not sure that I want to read, but I don't want to just skim the cover, I can listen to it or read the Blinkist version and get a sense of whether this is something that I want to invest more time in. So for example, right now I'm reading Becoming by Michelle Obama because the Blinkist version was just too intriguing to put down. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash minds to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash minds to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash minds. Yeah, and on top of that, there's this other side of, you know, on this podcast, we really like to delve into how so uh, society is being changed by science and technology. And uh, Palmer Luckey's alleged actions in 2016 and in, in the fall of 2016 um, seem to have had an outsized effect on, you know, potentially getting Trump elected. I mean, that's sort of how my reading of it is, is that there was this influence and sort of, you know, what the role that Facebook too played a role, you know, played in that in terms of Cambridge Analytica and, and sort of other, other practices. So, can you talk a little bit about like what influence you think Palmer had, why he had it, and and does that have anything to do with you know his technology, or is that just kind of something that is an aside and a coincidence? Um, for sure, I, I could talk a lot about that, um, as that ended up becoming a large part of the story, and and in a lot of ways why the book ended up taking me two years longer to write um, than originally planned. First, though, I just wanted to kind of get back to something that I thought would tie together an earlier point, just in terms of like the whole Facebook of it all, which is something I think that all of us should be conscious of nowadays. And also with Facebook, there's similarities with Google and Apple and a lot of these other big tech companies. But when we talked about why these companies failed in the 90s, 
it was from a business perspective. It was that they, you know, purely couldn't make enough money. And and part of the reason that Oculus sold to Facebook was that Facebook was willing to invest not only a, a few billion dollars in the acquisition, but also in continued development with uh with the Oculus Rift and and later with Oculus Go and Quest and all these other things. But basically, Oculus does not have to turn a profit for a very long time, which as a VR fan, you know, I like, but as a Facebook skeptic, it worries me because it just speaks to that there's a, you know, they're going to recoup that money elsewhere down the line by bringing people, you know, basically finding other ways to monetize, uh, which we know typically they do so with data. But anyway, that's a, a long-winded way of prefacing what, I, what I'm going to get to. So I'm curious, I, I would say that Palmer... Lucky did not have an outsized role at all in the election of Trump. What what are you, are you referring to, or what made you feel that way? I mean, just just knowing that he, you know, well, at least that. And again, I don't know how much of this is is truth. You can tell me. But this idea that he was uh, funding some of these troll attacks, and you know whether or not those had uh, an influence on the decisions that people made, you know, at the voting booth. So, for example, you know, tearing down Hillary Clinton. You know, again, I don't know to oh, what yeah, extent. Sure, sure, sure. You know. um, so, so I have uh, strangely become an expert in this topic and talked to a lot of people that I never expected to, nor particularly wanted to in my life, including folks like Milo Yiannopoulos, who was tangentially involved in um, the endeavor and with the reporting of what happened with Palmer. But um, essentially, there, what happened was there is a uh, subreddit on Reddit called the Donald, which was like or I guess which is still like home to a lot of rabid Donald Trump fans. And it certainly gets rowdy in there. It's not, it's not a place that I subscribe to. Um, but anyway, two, two moderators from the Donald wanted to start a uh, 401c um, like political group um, with the plan, with the goal of bringing, uh, of basically putting up meme-like images onto billboards um, in reality. So there was no internet component to this organization that they started called Nimble America. And Palmer donated, I think, like $9,100 or, you know, it was reported as $10,000 to help pay for the legal fees of uh, them setting up that organization. And they put up one billboard in Pennsylvania that had a, a character, uh, like a cartoonish uh, image of Hillary Clinton and uh, a headline or a, a copy that said, uh, too big to jail. And, um, you know, the, it is clearly not a pro-Hillary um, billboard, but it also was not like a very distasteful one, uh, which is relevant because of how it was reported. And, you know, what what I think you probably remember reading is that as if Palmer had financed some sort of like troll army that was going out and putting out memes and doing all these terrible things. And there was, you know, like none of that actually happened. If you are... Uh, you know, it's it's totally fair to dislike Palmer for donating money to an organization that wanted to put up billboards of a candidate that you don't like. That's that's fine. You know, I see that as completely reasonable. But um, the the reporting that happened was absolutely not aligned with any of what I have found to be true. And and for me, that was like a formative experience, just seeing how how much. You know, basically, to me, it was almost like fake news in action. Um, and i that's a phrase I hate, especially as a journalist, because it has, you know, really led to a, a lack of trust in our institutions. But 
at least in that in this case, I felt like I had a front row seat to the destruction of someone's reputation for reasons that were mostly fictional. Yeah. And so, so I, you know, thank you for clarifying that, because I think that for a lot of us, when we think Palmer Lucky, we think, oh, you know, founder of Oculus, but then also did this very bad thing. And and as you put it, I mean, it sounds like, you know, it, that it's an exaggeration of how bad the thing was that he did, um, given, you know, the sort of media attention. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, I spent over, you know, I guess it's been it's, it's been over two years now since that whole thing happened. And um, I, I've spent like at least like 20 hours, I think, talking to the founder of Nimble America, which was not so much always just for the book, but partially just for me, because I I, I really don't like the current administration and our, and our current president. So just trying to sort of understand like where this guy was coming from. But initially, it was largely because I wanted to make sure that if I were writing what my research led, was leading to me to believe that I was not being somehow like deceived, because the coverage was very much you know, there, there was no ambiguity. There was no ambiguity in how it was reported that Palmer was funding white supremacists. Like that was how it was reported. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, these people were not white supremacists, and they absolutely are not. Um, and going back through like, you know, Reddit records, and one of their biggest challenges, meaning the t- the two founders of New America, who had been moderators of the Donald, was to keep white supremacists off of the Donald. You know, we could have a conversation about why white supremacists were so drawn to the Donald in the first place. But, um, but at least you know, from everything that I've learned in my two years of research, there is so little truth to what was reported. But it, in a way, almost becomes fact because you have so many outlets reporting this. Like I, I remember just once looking at this list of like the first twenty-five outlets that reported. You know, it starts off with the Daily Beast saying. Palmer Lucky is the billionaire secretly funding Trump's meme machine. And then Ars Technica takes it one step further to Palmer Lucky is the billionaire secretly funding Trump's racist meme machine. And it just is sort of this game of telephone that escalates with each headline more sensational and a little bit pushing uh, the inaccuracy further. Um, And that alone was very alarming to me. But then also just looking at this list of like 25 headlines, the other thing I found alarming was just like, why are there 25 stories on this? There, no, no one is doing any original research. And it's just this, they're basically just copying and pasting something else that's, that someone else did. Um, you know, I would have liked to see the original work be much better. But also, it's just kind of interesting in, this, in our current age that so many stories say nothing different. And I guess it depends on where you get your news from. Um, you know, like I understand from an economic standpoint why this happens, but it's just kind of alarming. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, with without getting too far down uh, a line of a reply all episode, <laughs> we can leave them to uh, tell us about the Donald. Um, but I, I, I do want to, you know, one of the reasons I was interested in this in part, too, is because it kind of also speaks to some of the issues that you raise in your book about just kind of intellectual property and how, you know, that would seem to be a big fight now. And of course, when there's billion do- billions of dollars at stake, or, you know, as we were just talking, you know, the, the election of a president at stake, these, these stakes are so huge. You know, people are going to, you know, own different aspects of it, uh, or, or think they own different aspects of it, uh, you know, and there will be some arguments about that. So, so that kind of got gets me to to this, um, you know, Zenimax lawsuit. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of what the, you know, crux of the issue was there? And, and sort of how that influences. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how sort of like the results of, of that lawsuit and so forth are going to influence kind of the way that Silicon Valley and, and how intellectual property is viewed in the future. 
Sure, absolutely. You know, it's it's super fascinating stuff. So, you know, remember when I was uh, taking us back in time and kind of getting to the origins of Oculus, certainly it starts with Palmer in that trailer building headsets, but Oculus wouldn't have happened without that guy I mentioned, John Carmack. And John Carmack was an employee of, uh, of id Software, which is owned by ZeniMax. And John Carmack is also a very outspoken proponent of open sourceness and sharing. Um, he, he is anti-patent to the extent that his contract with ZeniMax actually has a special provision that he is allowed to share his work with other companies and other people um, and to talk about certain, you know, talk about the technical details um, during his famous three hour long, no note card keynote speeches. So that gets to an interesting idea, be, you know, being that um, I think, I think there is my, my conclusion from this, though, you know, I, I don't want to influence readers too much, is, is that it's um, very obvious that John Carmack helped Oculus. And it's also very obvious that John Carmack's contract was set up so that he could help Oculus and there would be no legal issue. But after, you know, and then initially there was this close relationship between John Carmack and ZeniMax and Oculus. And uh, they were trying to work out an agreement where ZeniMax would invest in Oculus and uh, get, get equity in the company. But um, the people at ZeniMax had a thinking of virtual reality, much more like mine was at the time, which was that VR is kind of stupid or it's not potentially profitable. So that ended up falling apart. Um, and there was, and they even told John to stop working on VR um, because they didn't think it, there was any you know, money to be made. Um, but then when, I guess it was like a year and a half or two years later, Facebook bought Oculus for $3 billion, um, ZeniMax, came out of the woodwork and uh, ended up suing Oculus um, for a lot of things. They, they sued uh, Palmer by name and then also Carmack and Brendan Reeb, the CEO of Oculus, and then Oculus and Facebook. And there was, and there was a trial that happened in uh, January of 2017. Yeah, 2017. And uh, so one of the key claims made by ZeniMax was that in addition to uh, you know, accusing Oculus slash John Carmack of literally stealing code, like essentially like copying and pasting work that John had done or that ZeniMax had done. There was also this idea of non-literal copying, uh, which is a really thorny conceptual issue, uh, let alone a legal issue, which is basically that, um, you know, it's not saying the code came from another place or from another person, but it's saying that, um, their, the idea of their approach to the code is what is valuable. And, um, you know, so I, th I think that after the case, John Carmack used an analogy of like, uh, he talked about storytelling and how, you know, you could, like the, basically the hero's journey, like that it's almost as if Cinemax was trying to copyright the hero's journey. And therefore every story that has the hero's journey would be non literally copying this template, uh, when in reality, what is what is usually copyrighted is the characters and the specific storytelling details. Um, I, you know, fortunately, the, the Oculus was not Oculus and Facebook and Palmer and Brendan Carmack were not found um, guilty of that. But but it did seem to be potentially setting a dangerous precedent that that was even grounds for a lawsuit. One of my uh, favorite parts of of uh, that lawsuit, that reporting, uh, was the bicycle analogy <laughs> that you report on, where. <laughs> You know, this is really good. So here's the lawyer saying, if this jury finds that Oculus stole virtual reality technology from ZeniMax, approving upon that technology doesn't make it yours, does it? He's asking Mark Zuckerberg. 
And Zuckerberg responds, I don't know. I disagree with the premise of your question. So it's kind of hard to get on top of that. The lawyer says, okay, well, let's make it real simple. If you steal my bike and you paint it and put a bell on it, does that make it your bike? And Zuckerberg is like, no. But I think the analogy here is too simplistic. And Mark Zuckerberg comes back with, you know, this would be like someone who created a piece of like a bar that might go on a bike and then someone built a spaceship out of it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's think, uh, I, very little that I agree with Mark Zuckerberg on, but I do agree with him there. And, and significantly, you know, first and foremost, I consider myself a creator. So in general, I tend to align more with the, I guess, like the plaintiffs in these sorts of situations with copyright situations. You know, I'm kind of sympathetic to people with copyright claims, but this one is, uh, you know, the idea of non-literal copying is kind of garbage, unless maybe there's a more concrete example that might change my mind. But I, like, I think Zuckerberg is not off base there with that hilarious bicycle analogy. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that gets me to the core of what I really, I'm really asking here, which is, you know, how is this going to change the way that Silicon Valley and these kinds of innovations work in the future? Because, you know, these to bring virtual reality to everybody's reality is going to take still a lot of teamwork. It's going to be it's going to require a lot of people just like as anything does. And, and you know, with these technologies, even though we might um, gravitate towards one particular founder like Palmer Luckey. Ultimately, the, the the story of your book is that, you know, where we are today happened because of all these other people, because of this huge, you know, Facebook machine, which has so much money to devote to this and resources and so forth. Um, and so, you know, and, and now there's also this kind of trend amongst these big companies like Facebook and Apple and, and Google to sort of uh, keep their uh, employees locked in. I mean, it used to be that they would just buy up whatever startups those people would go and, and try to, to start. But now there's like, you know, a lot of these rulings have led to people being really afraid that they could get sued if they start anything that is remotely related to anything they thought about while they were working for one of these big companies. So what do you think about that? I think it's very real. It's very scary. I mean, I, I was just thinking like a great example is that show Silicon Valley that I'm sure uh, several of your listeners are familiar with, but just the, you know, the the protagonist or one of the protagonists of that show created an app while he was at um, a Google-like company, and all he, you know, the only overlap between him and that company was that like once he uploaded it on the computer, and they ended up suing him. Um, so clearly, they had very little merit to it. But 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 you know, but I think that the, the, the line of the line of thinking that you're talking about is very important. Um, and it reminds me of a conversation I had early on when I was working on this book. I met with a, a v, I was meeting with several VCs to see what their perspective was on VR and where all this was headed. And and I remember asking them, um, you know, do they see this? Because there's a you know a lot of people made a parallel between the you know the 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 potential platform play of VR and and similar with like this was like a new internet age or like smartphone. So I was curious if they believed that there would be, um, you know, companies that really broke through in the same way that we saw in the internet era, whether it was like Amazon or eBay or any of these, um, you know, these small startups that ended up growing and scaling very quickly. And and they told me that no, that they saw this as a rich getting richer situation. And I think that that has proven thus far to be the case where it's still very early. And, and I think a lot of it is because of what you're describing. You know, part of it is that these companies like um, Google and Facebook and, and Apple and Amazon, um, you know, they, you know, have claims to what work that employee does, employees do. Uh, part of it too is that especially Facebook, or at least I'm familiar with Facebook, they are so good at um, using 
their software to uh, find uh, company, you know, startups that are starting to thrive early on and making acquisition offers so they can get in early and acquire the competition and clear out the competition. But but I think another part of it is exactly what we're talking about with the ZeniMax Oculus case, where if Oculus had been on its own at that point and you know basically had not sold to Facebook, that that litigation could have just been crippling. Even though, in the end, after appeals, I think Oculus is going to has been pretty victorious. And by the end, I'd be surprised if ZeniMax received much of anything. But you know, this is years and years of litigation. There was a three-week-long trial. Um, there was at one point a five hundred million dollar ruling against Oculus. And if you're a small company, like just I mean, emotionally, that's tough to deal with. But you know, without the big pockets of a company like Facebook or one of the other big tech companies, um, it's just hard to weather that storm. Um, so I think that that's relevant to all of us um, because we see what happens when these uh, big tech companies don't have much competition. They essentially don't have to change. And I've always been a believer in the merits of, of competition driving innovation. So, you know, that's been sort of a, a sad larger theme that I saw throughout the course of this book that was never really at the forefront because it's not super related to virtual reality, but just from my experiences in Silicon Valley and, you know, the point that you're making with the lawsuit, I think I'm now realizing how, how much this is the case. Yeah. So what do you think is the future now in terms of, you know, how soon do you think virtual reality is going to become as ubiquitous as Facebook or, you know, the way we use our mobile phones, given these this this, this sort of way in which these new constraints, I should say? I think it's going to take a while. I, I mean, I always I was always a little bit more conservative. Um, I remember early on, like almost like my editor expected that the first Christmas season, these things would sell like billions of copies, uh, you know, billions of headsets. Uh, I never thought it was going to be like that, but I do think that the concerns of what information Facebook um, obtains from the Oculus Rift headset and and you know that go that goes also for the HTC Vive or Sony uh, PlayStation VR, the, some of the other headsets. Um, just basically everything that you're doing in there is something that can be tracked and captured, and uh, I think that we're now grappling with what that actually means. And then just in general, I, I always sort of, you know, like I said, I, I, didn't, I don't agree often with Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I definitely didn't, I didn't agree that this was going to be a similar trajectory as uh, smartphones. Uh, to me, the comp that I always saw, and this was probably influenced by Palmer Lucky, who always talked to me in these terms, was much more like the PC revolution from the late 70s and early 80s. And so, you know, we have the success story of Apple in the late 70s. And we all think that that is, you know, it definitely was a success story. But, you know, just anecdotally, you know, my family didn't own a computer until like 1995, a, a personal computer. So it took 15 years for it to reach sort of more of a mainstream audience. Um, obviously, I'm just a sample size of one. So take from that what you will. But but it really was, it did start with hobbyists. And then it became, you know, it, people, the personal computers were originally mostly just for business purposes. And I am even old enough to remember that people were like, why would I ever want a personal computer in my home? What would I, what would I do with it? And that's the kinds of questions people are asking now with VR, like even as cool as impressed, as cool as they think it is, or as impressed as they are when trying it, it's like, okay, but what am I actually going to use this for? And unfortunately, even after three years of working on this book, there still is not a great answer. I'm very confident that there, there will be one. Um, you know, I'm probably more optimistic about that than 
before because I see how it can be used for productivity and for commercial ventures and even just like for training. But I do think it's going to be a, a long road and not a, a quick fix not, without even getting into concerns that people have and probably should have about the companies that are providing these services. Yeah, and I think it gets back to your issue, your question or your issue of the fact that even when the hardware is there, the software is going to take a long time to build. Like, for example, I've, you know, as, a, as an opera singer, I've definitely wanted to a VR program where I can step in and practice my opera roles with a full orchestra and, you know, on the stage of the Met. <laughs> and virtual reality will provide that someday, but somebody's got to code it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money and not everyone's going to be interested in, in making my opera career uh, flourish, you know. Absolutely. And, and you know, part of what appealed to me initially um, with Oculus, this being back in like 2014, 2015, was that it was a company started by enthusiasts and mostly for en- enthusiasts. You know, they, they had mainstream aspirations. But 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 I say that specifically because um you know, th- what they actually sold initially was a developer kit. It, it wasn't even for consumers. It was for developers. And they wanted, it, you know, I guess th- another way of saying this is that there's probably not going to be, you know, I can't imagine a boardroom somewhere at Google where someone's like, hey, we should make this opera program. Um, that'll make us a lot of money and we'll sell a lot of copies. I, I mean, hey, may- maybe it will. But I would say more likely that's a very niche product. And what you get when you're dealing with enthusiasts is much more niche creations. And I really liked that aspect. I really liked the, the developer community and ecosystem that was being created. And that changed a lot with Facebook. And, and with that came a lot of good, um, you know, by scaling up and, and sort of changing the trajectory. But, that, but that, was, that, that is something that I miss and would like to see more of is just more from the indie developers um, creating the kinds of apps like what you're talking about. <laughs> So I want to uh, let our listeners know that Blake J. Harris's book, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality is now available at booksellers everywhere. I have one last question for you as we have been talking about, you know, some of the things that people need to consider in terms of how VR will affect society, especially if it's being run by large companies like Facebook who make their money off of data gathering, you know, this idea of tracking and capturing. Um, well, now Palmer Lucky seems to be tracking and capturing in a different way. Yes. <laughs> so uh, in a way, way that in my opinion, is is uh, very scary. So tell us a little bit about, um, is it Anduril? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, it's Anduril, uh, Anduril. named for uh, the sword in Lord of the Rings. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so, so September 2016, Palmer becomes the most hated man in Silicon Valley, or the worst, according to Wired. And that's pretty reflective of what I was hearing from people at the time. And then uh, six months, uh, four months later, they have this trial with Zenimax. Two months after that, uh, Palmer... Uh, quote exits Facebook for unknown reasons, but uh, really he was fired from Facebook. And then uh, over the next few months, he uh, starts a company on the roll with Trey Stevens and a, from uh, Founders Fund and a few other people. And and Trey worked with Peter Thiel, and Peter Thiel was uh, is probably known to some of your listeners. And he was one of the first investor. He was obviously the first investor in Facebook. He was the first investor in Oculus, interestingly enough, and he was the first investor in uh, Palmer's new company on and uh, and and their first project is uh, is a digital tower. Uh, it's a it's a virtual border wall um, using virtual reality technologies and, and digital technologies to uh, create a, a um, you know a surveillance tracking system on our southern border. At least for now, that's where it's been implemented. Um, which would be, I guess, in contrast to that 
um, that ridiculous uh, wall that the president wants to put up. So I, I you know, personally, I think in a nonpartisan way, it, it shouldn't be too controversial because I'd rather have that than than a physical wall. But then again, it gets to what you're talking about, the tracking and the surveillance aspect, which is something very worthy of concern. Blake J. Harris, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign. We could not do this without you. Especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahella, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Shang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. Whatever the struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com slash minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.